Profiling Advocate magazine, this is LGBTQ and A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, hello, and today I'm talking to Grace Bonney. Grace, among many other things, is a writer and the creator of the blog Design Sponge. We spend a lot of time talking about coming out when you're an adult. Grace was 30 when she came out, and she talks about how that affected her whole life, of course, but also her business, and just the massive changes to her business that resulted. We also discuss love and how some stereotypes about queer people exist for a reason. Grace met her wife, and they moved in together after just a few days. And, you know, I think we need to celebrate these stereotypes. Some of them are my favorite part of being queer, and a lot of them are what make us a community. So we talk about all of that. Now, if you enjoyed the interview, please subscribe. We have new interviews every week, and when you subscribe and share it with all of your friends on social media, it is a huge help in helping our show grow. So thank you to everyone who has done that. All right, without further ado... Here's Grace. I want to talk about your work and Design Sponge, but first, if it's okay, I want to talk about sexuality, just in general. (laughs) (laughs) Great. And I say that because most of the stories we hear about queer people revolve around a single narrative of knowing that you're queer from a very young age. And it seems like that was not your story. And it's not many people's stories. And so you came out around 30, is that right? I did, yeah. When did you start to realize that yourself? I knew something was different um, from as long as I can remember. And I essentially had a, like a girlfriend when I was in seventh grade, but didn't quite realize that was what was happening, except everyone else around me did. And oh. so I like it's such a like queer girl trope, at least, of like falling in love with your best friend. But totally did that. And then, you know, seventh grade, like one of the most awkward years in your life, no matter what. And then everyone's like passing those little notes that, you know, the ones that you can like shape with your fingers and go yeah. like, which one, blah, blah, blah. People would pass those and say like, Grace is a dyke and da, da, da. And it was so traumatizing. And I grew up in the South and it's just not a super friendly place to be queer. So it like immediately closeted me I think before I even fully understand what was happening I just knew I loved her and that felt very normal and that's fascinating because super close female friendships are acceptable in culture right so it's like not that weird yes but then when a whole school spreads a rumor nobody's mom wants to let you stay over at sleepovers and it becomes this like very ostracizing thing. Oh, no. It's funny. I see other parents talk about that these days because I think kids come out as queer or some other identity um, earlier and earlier. And I think that while society is kind of more open to that, I think parents still struggle with like, is it quote unquote safe to let my kids be around them? And that's been so triggering in this way that I didn't like realize that I've held on to that aspect of it when I was younger of like, oh, people don't feel comfortable with me around their daughters, which is so messed up. Yes. So you like repress that, push it down. That was not allowed in, in your mind to put words in your mouth. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, it was that was expressed to me very clearly by many people. Oh, so when did it start to like reemerge? Because you were married to a man. Yeah, I was um, a very kind, very wonderful person. And that, you know, I think that's a sticky part of a lot of people's narratives. And I think it's tempting, especially this. I noticed this with women more than men and to kind of look back and say, oh, well, it was all a sham all along and I was suppressing something. But I think for me, sexuality is this kind of fluid, evolving understanding of like 
let's stop putting labels on things. For me, that doesn't feel comfortable. I know it feels comfortable for some people. But for me, I don't I feel like something changed when I turned 30. Like there felt like this chemical change in my body. And I don't know what happened. But it must have been some kind of silent tipping point where I just woke up and was like, I am fundamentally unhappy in every way. And something has got to change. And I had built myself this very pretty package all around myself. And there was nobody to blame but me. I mean, that was my own doing. And so I had to like dismantle that brick by brick and then slowly start to build something stable for myself, but that wasn't so rigid. And so since I've been 30 and I'm 37 now, it's just been a process of like, how do I love and understand myself in a way that doesn't rebox myself all over again? Right. So did you always know at 30 when you were unhappy that it was due to sexuality or was that like a discovery? For sure. I th- I think it became really, really clear. I think I had convinced myself for what, I don't know, however you are in 11th or when you're in seventh grade, you're what, 14, 15? I think from that age on, I just convinced myself it was just that girl or just this other girl or just this other girl or just every best friend I had from like high school through college where I was fully in love with them and like throwing myself at them in this way that I'm I'm very sure they all realized. But I was like, no, this is just what it is to be friends. Um, and I don't think I quite fully understood that until I got older. And then I started to realize like, wait, there's been one too many, like five too many of these moments for this to just be a thing. And I think like the word queer wasn't really in the vernacular so much when I was like in college. And so I think if somebody had kind of sat me down and said, hey, like this doesn't have to mean a full identity shift for you. Like just acknowledge this is part of you and move forward. Who cares? But I think it was like, oh, I'm either like a full lesbian and I cut out all of my straight friends or I just continue to kind of play this role. And it wasn't until I turned 30 where I was like, I need to carve out a narrative and a space for myself that's a bit more flexible. Right. And you're not just playing this role in your life. You're also playing it as a public figure online. Yeah. I mean, in a small, niche way, but in a niche that, that is in- very straight. And yeah. Very like, you know, dutiful housewife who knows how to make pretty things for the table and pretty things for the house. So that wasn't that big an influence on you being a, a public figure. I mean, no, I don't really think I'm a public figure in the way that like a lot of people who are on your show are. I think I'm well known within my niche. And I think a lot of people were like very turned off by me coming out and felt like, oh, okay, well, everything you said is a lie then. And so it was kind of a process of being like, hey, this is what it what it feels like to kind of hide a part of yourself or try to understand it and figuring out a delicate part of your identity in a public space it's not the safest place to do that. So it right. took me a while. Yeah, because the majority of us get to know ourselves and figure out who we are and screw up <laughs> privately. <laughs> I do that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, I use the word public figure because you have almost a million Instagram followers. And so um, I don't know like a better word for that. <laughs> it's funny because I think a huge chunk of those people have no idea that I'm queer. And I can write about my wife constantly and they'll be like, oh, you're, you and your sister are so cute. Or you and your friend. And I'm like, we look nothing alike. Like, I think it's a willful ignorance sometimes. And then whenever I do talk about things more overtly or like politically, I just get like a DM just full of people who are like, keep your political agenda out of the way, stay in your lane. And so... I think in particular in the kind of lifestyle niche, this women in particular are expected to just be very quiet and kind of stay in like a very pretty box. Well, I think that 
like that all goes to like gender expectations, which are so intimately woven within sexuality. And I think it's such been such a public conversation lately about the um, gendered nature of emotions, specifically about women's anger. And I just hadn't thought of that until um, not even with the Kavanaugh hearings, but like with the 2016 election and beyond, where women cannot express anger, where men cannot cry. Leadership qualities are gendered as male. And like that's slow. Like our eyes are, I think, finally open to that. I think there's... Opening, how about? Yeah, I think, I think it's a full process. And I think it depends on what your background is and where you're coming from. Because I think a lot of people who have been quote unquote othered in any way seem to be a bit more receptive to the idea of of trying to be open hearted about those things. But I mean I, I talk to at least a few dozen readers a day who identify as straight, cis, white women who just really, really struggle with that kind of concept and look to me as the person who like needs to hold their hand through that understanding process. And I do as much of that as humanly possible, but there's a there's an emotional cost to hand holding somebody through the process of them telling you they're not okay with who you are, but they would like you to make them okay with it. And it's so tricky because like they want to be like talked over to our side, but also you can't do that one person at a time on this earth. Right? I've, I've tried. <laughs> I've tried. I mean, I think that so many moments in my life where I have have grown or opened my mind have been because of those one-on-one moments. And I made I mean, years worth of mistakes at, at Design Sponge with just not being inclusive, not waking up to all of the problematic things that were happening in my own website. And it took a lot of one-on-one conversations, um, particularly with women of color, to sit me down and say, like, wake up, look at what you are doing. Like, we cannot hold your hand through this, but we are being gracious with you and trying to, like, show you what's going on. So I try to pay that forward with women who reach out to me who say, like, I voted for Trump, but I want you to know I'm not a bad person. Like, I still want to be a part of your conversation. Essentially, tell me that's okay. And I don't know that I can tell them that that's okay. But that is literally what people reach out to me and to to my wife, Julia, as well, to say, like, I voted for Trump, but I'm okay with you and your wife. Like, I just want you to know that. And it's it's complicated. And so are they seeking out a reassurance that their vote for Trump was okay also? Yeah. Oh, They'll, I mean, I've the number of comments that both of us have gotten where people will explicitly say, like, that's OK, right? And, you know, I try not to get into right or wrong you know, judgments, but it's really hard when someone says, like, I'm not really OK with your identity, but I love when you write about design. So we're still cool. Right. And it's hard. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up about your site and how um, much it's changed over the years. And you said that's because of a lot of conversations you've had. Just for people who are listening don't know, you have really expanded to include the people behind design, but also to include more diverse faces and voices. Yes, and that's an ongoing forever process. For as long as Design Sponge exists, which who knows how long that will be, I think that it is our job to constantly expand that platform to look and sound and honor what our country actually looks like. And I think we did a horrible job of doing that, especially for the first like eight years of its existence. And I guess I'm so impressed because not a lot of people I think could say that about the thing that they created, right? I mean, but isn't that the point of, of life? I think I think the internet forces you into a place of it's, it's not safe to admit that you've made mistakes or that you are imperfect or evolving or that even in those attempts to evolve, you're not doing it in this very clean and neat way. But I only feel comfortable when I'm just fully putting it out there and saying like, hey, I tried to do this thing. That did not work. I apologize. Like, I am learning. Thank you for your patience. And 
that's all I can do. And I think that's part of the reason we've been able to exist for, I think we're going on 15 years now, because I think that we've been real people who try to own up to the fact that we're growing up. I mean, I was 23 when I started it, and I'm 37 now. So I'm a very different person than I was then. That's wild. Regarding like the diversity you were talking about, something funny that I see happening is that when I'm going to use the word public figure. (laughs) But when a public figure comes out, they're immediately viewed as an expert in the community. And they're asked to speak on that. Did did you find that? I have tried to resist that as much as humanly possible. Yes. I think anytime you change or reveal or, I don't know, are are more open about some identity factor, it becomes the only thing people want to talk about. And I think that's, I'm in no way an expert in being queer. I'm only expert in like, the, the life that I have led so far. <laughs> okay, so when I hear you in interviews and read, you know all the right things to say and you use very inclusive language. So I want to know, like, where did you turn to to begin seven years ago, like, to figure that out for yourself? I made a really conscious effort. I would say, like, probably seven or eight years ago to completely change the places where I was paying attention and listening and to talk less. So I changed the websites I followed, the people on social media. Um, I didn't unfollow people. I just expanded, expanded the events that I would go to, like whether it's anti-racism training or just more activist groups where I'm learning more inclusive and more compassionate ways to listen. Um, I think particular bloggers, we have a tendency to feel like our voices are so important and deserve to be heard because we can. And that's not always a great excuse. So for me, it was a really important process of unlearning my own voice, knowing that my voice is important and my story is important as a human being, as all human being stories are, but that uh, my voice has been centered for quite some time and it doesn't need to always be. And that is very threatening for a lot of people who are in my position, but I find it empowering just as a person. I just want to always be growing. Like, what's the point of me just always being the center of every conversation? That would be so boring. Right. And well, like, thank you for taking that seriously, because I think that um, something I perceive, and <laughs> I was fair to have not to say this in a shady way, but I'll just say it the way I want to say it. Is that okay, Grace? Can I insert uh, like the RuPaul shady button noise right now? <laughs> absolutely not. This is my podcast. Um, what I was going to say is that I see celebrities talking and I hear the correct buzzwords. They they name drop non-binary people. They name drop the trans women of color who've been killed in the South. And yet their actions in life are not reflecting that. And um, I think that like their PR person needs to say like, hey, we're saying all these things, but what what is the next step? Or that's phase one. And I think that like for, in your life, like the next step was re was changing this massive website that you control to reflect this and to like match the words. And so I think that's like a great example for people to hear. I think a thing I didn't realize at first that I'm glad has kind of happened, and I mean, to be very clear, we have lost a ton of readers and a ton of sponsors for that shift in the site. And Do you have like a number you can tell us, like reader-wise or not really? But I, I mean, I could, I'll send you the picture of the chart that I, I screen grabbed of like our traffic when that shift kind of happened and the site became much more inclusive and much more about representation and changing the people who are telling stories. I mean, our traffic just was a kind of slow nosedive. I don't know if this is okay for me to say, but all of the most listened to episodes on this podcast are white people as well. And so it'd be very easy to see that and say, like, we should just continue with what people want to hear. And um, so I don't think that's unique. No. And it's, and I think, you know, every person who works on the internet, you have to kind of balance 
like I love the people I work with who have been dedicated to me at Design Sponge, and I want to be able to continue to pay them to be able to help with their mortgages, their childcare, and all the things they need. But I also need to be true to what this is. Like Design Sponge was never a moneymaker. It was never about scaling or anything like that. It's an art project. As a non-artist, it is the most artistic thing I have to my name. And so none of us get paid enough to compromise when it comes to who we are and what we believe in. So if it means that I'm not going to make, or we as a company aren't going to make as much money, I mean, I don't even pay myself from Design Sponge anymore. But if we make less money or we lose some traffic, I'm okay with that. I think some people will come back. And I think that the reason this is so important for me to be honest about on Design Sponge in particular is I think from the outside, I look and sound like a lot of people who read our site. Like nobody ever thinks I'm gay. Um, most people don't know much about my personal life, even though it's fully out there. And so I think I am an example of like a white woman who is trying to open her eyes to talk less, to take up less space and to pay more attention to all of the intersectional things that are important for our community to pay attention to. And so I think as people kind of slowly come back into the fold, I can be a little bit of an example of what it looks like to go through this process and somebody that they could talk to. Like I do get messages from women who are like, thank you for admitting you did that thing wrong or that you messed up. Like that made me feel like it's okay for me to try. And that to me is important because I do have a large audience of people watching me, primarily white women, um, who are kind of seeing me stumble and that is making them feel a little bit safer to take the risk to be more inclusive, to try using terms they maybe don't fully understand or to ask me questions about that. And that to me feels very important. Oh, and because they see you messing up and apologizing, it emboldens them to try out this new term. And when they mess up, they know it's okay. Yes, And they apologize and move on. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. I think it's important to see somebody trip and to say like, oh, she got back up too. Maybe I can. Oh, I love that. Also, because you've not been trying to scale your business and make it into like a cash cow, I would argue that's probably why you've been able to survive for 15 years. <laughs> just right? barely. Yeah, I think that we've always kind of been the low flying plane that just kind of keeps us slow. Maybe we're just a bus. Maybe we're not even a plane. We're just a slow moving bus that just keeps going forward, that can put just enough money in to keep the tank going. Um that's just, it's never been my goal to scale. And I think when you scale, you have to start thinking about more mainstream, quote unquote, mainstream audiences and what makes them comfortable. And me writing about Black Lives Matter or writing about like trans advocacy is is never going to be something that the majority of the advertisers in our particular niche want me to talk about. I have specifically been asked to not talk about many of those issues. So that's not worth it for me. Oh, from advertisers. Oh, yeah. Fully. I mean, very, very large scale brands have a huge problem when you take political stances. But keeping people alive is like not political. Or excuse me, it shouldn't be. It It isn't. It isn't. Basic human decency and rights and people's right to live a safe life and not get shot on the way home or not be unfairly imprisoned. I mean, you see it in every part of the lifestyle community where there's just a complete lack of awareness between how some things are popular. Like you see it in weed culture a lot of like white ladies doing yoga and CBD oil rubbed into things, but no one's talking about how many black and brown people have been imprisoned for owning the same amount of marijuana, don't see their family and their kids. And if you bring these things up, you're political. But to me, those things are just inherently linked to each other. And it's not really political in the way that that I think they're trying to criticize you for. Also, they're just facts also. Yeah, exactly. That's wow. Wow. But they're facts that make white people uncomfortable. 
And white people are usually the people putting advertising on the site. Yeah. I'm always curious about what advice people have to people who want to do what they want to do or, or do what you are doing. Um, however, you started blogging in a very different time. Like, would you even recommend people start blogs? God, no. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Or if you do, f- for just for enjoyment. I mean, that's why I started Design Sponge as well as I was 23 and living in Brooklyn. and was like, look at all this cool stuff that art students are making. They were like opening up garages left and right in Williamsburg and like making sofas out of found materials, which all felt very revolutionary at the time. And I was just taking pictures with a point and shoot and putting them on Blogspot. And I think that at the time design, and, and honestly, a lot of design is still incredibly elitist, incredibly expensive, very, very white. And and a bit ageist in this interesting way. And to be able to kind of document this new movement was really powerful for me. So I think if there's something that means something to you enough that you don't need to be paid from it right away, yeah, start a blog. Start in whatever platform feels like the place you feel most comfortable talking about those things. But it is very difficult to stand out. And it's very difficult to do these things unless you are in very particular niches. Like design doesn't have any money. If I was like a fashion blogger, I'd probably have a lot more money. Or like a beauty blogger. Those brands have money. I think that everyone is looking for like the one tip to success, like the one thing they need to do. When in reality, the secret is that they need to do what you did, which is like you just get started, you jump in, and then you figure it out as you go, right? Yeah. I mean, that's also it's it's very honest and that's that's good advice. It's also slightly privileged because like I can afford to take a little bit. Like I'm doing this with the magazine. Like we launched this magazine called Good Company, and I can afford to not do it right the first time. I mean, I can't afford to do that more than once, but to try to figure it out, it's because I live in a two-income house. I have another source of income, or I did with Design Sponge um, until recently, and it let me take time to figure things out. But not everybody's in that same financial position, and so sometimes you do have to really plan really far in advance. But that's always my advice for anyone starting a business, whether it's media or something more creative, is to actually take the time to meet with a financial advisor. And there are very affordable ones um, with like every freelance union ever to find somebody who can say like, this is how much capital you're going to need for the first four or five months. Have this on hand and keep your other job until the very last second because it puts a lot of pressure on a business to make it your only source of income. And that leads to decisions that aren't based out of passion or creativity or storytelling. It leads to decisions based on what advertisers want. And then you become every other publication. Oh, if you were making decisions based on money, it, you wouldn't be as happy with Design Sponge. Oh, I would be a big list of articles of like the 10 design mistakes you're making, five paint colors that will make someone hate you. Like everything is just like a scare tactic listicle now. Yeah. And every time I walk into a design store, even all the product looks the exact same as every other store. Who are, who are they copying? That's a good question. I mean, it's the thing that's hard to deny is that most box stores are watching independent designers taking those trends and then kind of watering them down for a larger audience. And sometimes they do that without even watering it down and they just completely copy, which happens all the time. And that's a huge issue in the design community. And most independent designers can't afford to take on, you know, an international company. Um, But you do see people speaking up like Adam JK and Tuesday Bassin both took on Zara this year when they copied like a full enamel pin collection. And that was a a very clear David and Goliath situation that I think we were all so happy to see kind of go positively. Um, 
But in general, mass design looks to what's happening that's small, cool, and influencer-based, and then they try to find a way to round the edges, so to speak. And it must be so much easier to find with the internet now. Yeah, or they just they just steal stuff from social media, or, you know, they ask for samples, and then, you know, a new designer gets really excited because, you know, X brand has reached out to say we like it, and then you never hear back, and then six months later, that product is in a store. It happens every month, all the time. It's constantly happening. The internet and design on the internet is fairly new. Yeah. How have websites like Design Sponge and Pinterest, how has that changed the design world? Those two websites in the same sentence are rough for me. Well, I use those <laughs> set in the same sentence because um, your customer is using both. Oh, a thousand percent. I mean, <laughs> I fought Pinterest tooth and nail and the founders are very nice people. And I remember being on a panel. There's a huge um, conference that happens every year in Salt Lake City is a whole other story of like the Mormon lifestyle blog culture that's a big thing. But there's a big conference called Alt Summit and a bunch of us who were kind of OG era design bloggers were there and the founder of Pinterest was there. And I remember him saying, I started Pinterest because I love blogs like yours so much. And then we watched as Pinterest as a platform kind of I don't know if it caused it so much as it just represented this change and okay, we don't care about who makes this content, I want to pin it and make it my own and curate this kind of space without saying where it came from. And we saw a huge hit in traffic, a huge rise in content just being lifted and then then credited to Pinterest, which is not a source. That's like crediting Google. Right. Um, but, you know, there's no fighting the behemoth sometimes. And so we've just kind of rolled with it over the years. But it's it's a struggle. But that's the direction the internet is moving is I don't think people are so concerned with where things came from so much anymore as just kind of being a part of it and saying like, oh, this is cool. Did you also see that cool picture? And nobody knows where it came from. So we talked about the negative aspect of that. What is the positive there? I think when I step, well, if I take like my business owner hat off and just think of a human being, the only thing I really love about design is its ability to make somebody happy at home. And that can mean and look like a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And when I talk to people one-on-one about how Pinterest makes them feel, when they get to pin 10 pictures for their very first dorm room they're going to decorate or for their very first house or their partner is coming back, you know, from serving overseas and they want to decorate something to, like, celebrate them being home or a baby's room or something, they use Pinterest for that. And, you know, I, I can't look at them and say, that's a horrible tool, you should never use it. It's a meaningful thing for them. So for me, I see that as a way people use design for good. And that makes me happy because design can also be used as like a very judgmental weapon. And I would prefer to see it used that way as somebody saying, hey, I saved all these pictures. It makes me hopeful. It makes me happy. And then they tell me about that. So I can't be mad about that. You also mentioned... Um privilege before and like how design like the ability to afford design for your own apartment is a privilege from a personal example like i hate my couch but like i don't have the money to like get a new one right now you know and that's life um the couch that my ex neighbor gave me long story short um what i'm saying is though i think that with pinterest people also see like more affordable ways to get a design trend they want. Yes. I mean, we have, I've written so many essays about this at Design Sponge that make everybody mad, but there's like half of our audience that wants me to only write about box stores and things that are, you know, like like Targets, Crate and Barrel, that sort of thing. And they want me to write about everything that's under $500. It's very difficult to make a couch ethically, and especially in the United States, for less than $1,000. That doesn't mean that's fair. That doesn't mean that that makes anything accessible. Everybody needs somewhere to sit. And so I understand wanting things that are affordable, 
but maybe are not produced in the way everyone would want them to be. And then there's other half of people who are like, how dare you write about those things? Like, it's not supporting handmade artists and da, 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 da. And those are both sides of my audience. And I want to try to respect and appreciate both of them. So it's it's difficult to try to figure out, like, how you provide content that serves a wide amount of people when each end of that spectrum upsets somebody. Yes. I get frustrated with the, with the design world because I see us chasing fads that I think we'll be sick of in a year. Like, every time I see a chevron wall, I think, like, what are you doing in six months? You know, we're going to repaint this. And I, I don't, um, I think, that, like, design should be something that you want to look at for five years. Yeah. I think I wish everybody could kind of fast forward to being like 65 and that stage where your house has become this curated collection of things that have meaning behind them. And it's not fair to ask everybody not to buy anything until it has deep meaning behind it. But I think the older you get, the easier it is to make fewer of those impulse purchases because they don't mean anything. Like if that Chevron wall was something that you put up because you saw it on the blog and that seemed cool or everybody else was doing it rather than this makes me so happy – you're going to like not want it there in a year. And then it's a pain to take wallpaper down or repaint. So, But that is something that's doable with a paint. But then there's other bigger things that are like being built into a kitchen remodel that is going to be thousands and thousands to redo. And that's a whole other world of like we don't we try not to deal with like remodels and like professional interior designers at Design Sponge primarily because their price points are just so wild. And I think with HGTV and Fixer Upper and that whole community, that's wonderful. But unless you have like literally $300,000 that's liquid that you can work with for a renovation, that sort of stuff isn't very accessible to most of us. So it's why Design Sponge started with a very sort of do-it-yourself DIY ethos, because I watched kids at like Parsons and Pratt, you know, redoing sofas using like old t-shirts or old jackets or just whatever fabric they had around to make something look cool or interesting. And yes, that also assumes the privilege of having time to do that. But I've always really enjoyed that kind of ethos of like, cool, it's totally fine that you can't afford the one from the box store, but can you find some cool stuff at the thrift store and figure out a way to make that work? I think that we are also being brainwashed by the HGTV shows because they say the budget is 50000 but really they're spending 200000 And Why doesn't anyone explain that on camera? It makes me so angry. I don't know. It's the way I feel about... Um, like actresses faces they're like she's the most pretty woman in the world and you're like yeah but she had a nose job and like different lines and i i never want to judge anybody for getting their face done but we have to know that we can't achieve that exactly it's just transparency it's why like that word yes yeah, transparency. transparency. <laughs> and that's i mean that's why every project i've done so design sponge evolved into a book called in the company of women which has now evolved into this magazine and a podcast called good company because i wanted to tell more transparent stories behind all the pretty things we see in stores And I think so often we think of businesses as overnight successes or people as overnight successes. But in reality, everyone is panicking about something or everyone is having a hard time staying on budget. And I had to literally like go across the country and interview people and say, like, tell me about those times so people understand that this is not a smooth road. It is always going to be bumpy. It doesn't matter if you've been in business for 40 years. These things still happen. And when business publications in particular focus on stories of people who had, you know, family money or venture money, and I mean, they're always young, white, thin people anyway, we're looking at this very narrow path to success. And I am far more interested in all the stories that are on the outside of that, because that's how most of us get things done. Like, we don't have a family handing us $500,000 to open a storefront or... I desperately want that, but I don't have it. (laughs) 
None of us do. It's on my to-do list. Before we move off of design, you said that you think that your future might not be in the design world. Where do you see it uh, existing? I mean, if you had asked me two months ago, I was convinced that I was going to be a physical therapist because I was home with my dad and he had a knee replacement. And I was very good at being stern. And I loved that like very measurable goal of like, I need to get your knee to bend to this 90 degree angle within one week. And my job is so amorphous and always about like putting out 50 different fires and having this job that was like a tiny, very like measurable goal was so just like soul satisfying. But then I went home and got back into work and you forget about those moments and move on. So I don't know. But, you know, the design industry has has moved in a direction that I don't connect with very much anymore. And so has blogging. And I'm not a quote unquote influencer. I don't like have those connections. I'm not interested in kind of playing that game anymore. So I see myself moving into something that's more one-on-one or face-to-face with people. I really miss talking to people in real life. And I think on the internet, it's really easy to just fall into like web conversations. But then at the end of the day, when you have a bad year or a bad week or bad day, like who are you actually talking to? And for me, that's the people who live in my town who literally have no clue what I do or don't understand it at all. And that makes me feel good as a person and reminds me that I am so much more than whatever my job title is. In your town, um, you moved to upstate New York, is that right? Yeah, we moved to the Hudson Valley a few years ago, where like the vast majority of people don't understand what Julia and I do, um, which I love. It's such a dichotomy to your experience with me, where I follow you online, and I can tell you that you have a wife, that you have like a beautiful stone entryway to your house that's outside. <laughs> you know, like I know all these things. It's like such a weird thing. It's there is something real about that, like. I I mean, you and I have never met in person until today, but I follow and admire your work so deeply. And sometimes that connection is a real thing. Sometimes it's not. And that's always really hard. Like I've met people who I've admired and then it's a totally different thing. So when you meet somebody who is- Let's name names. I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) When you get to meet somebody and realize like, oh, they're, they're putting all the things that are, or a lot of things that are real on the internet, that's a really good feeling because a lot of people just save the highlight reel for the internet and- You also present a very real uh, person that's three-dimensional. And I think a great example of that is that your wife actually emailed you before you guys had met. And she was like, I like this Grace Bonnie person. Let me meet her. And you you said yes. Yeah. That that, that must have been a really good email. (laughs) It was. I mean, that's, it's sort of, we have a, a very, I mean, one way it's like super stereotypical, like lesbian story of like emailed, date, moved in three days later, married four months later, extra dog, house in the country, like all the cliches. We own a Subaru. Like, you Just know. <laughs> to clarify for people listening, though, when you say moved in after three days and married after f- four months, that's not an exaggeration, right? No, that's real. Yeah. <laughs> See, we spent a lot of the early part of the conversation talking about stereotypes in the community. And these, um, some of our stereotypes I'm obsessed with. Like, I love how many cliches are true. And I, well, I personally, in my experience, has not been that that is a negative thing. Like, I, th- I think for a lot of queer women, they don't like that kind of U-Haul stereotype. But I, I mean, that was my story. So I'm not going to fight it. And it's not for everybody. And that's totally fine. But for us, like, I hate that expression when you know, you know. But honestly, that's what happened. Like, I met her. We had both done a ton of personal work, like, lots of therapy. And so by the time we met, we were just adults who were like, I know what I want out of life. What do you want out of life? Like, oh, we want really similar things. And we really, really love each other. Like, cool. There's not a lot more to ask. And 
I think we both really value communication and like showing up in a relationship. And so, you know, that's, that's meant for many happy years so far. I like that you also named that you had done personal work oh, so God, that you can make this decision and know you're making the right one. It's hard. I mean, I have so much respect for any people who start relationships like much earlier in life and then make it all the way into 40s and 50s because there's so much personal change that happens in your life. Even if you're not like me and come out way later, like you just change as a human being so much. And that's a really hard thing to go through with somebody and maintain the same type of connection. And I think it requires work as a couple. Like everybody knows what the concept of couples therapy, but I honestly think individual therapy is even more powerful or just equally. Yes. In our world, we are socialized to expect men to ask people out and make the first move. When you came out at 30 and then we're dating a woman, did you have to like unlearn those things? Ooh, it's such a controversial topic when it comes to queer women. Um, because originally when I came out, most of the people that I dated were non-binary or kind of their own terminology was like pre-trans or people who are more like masculine presenting and there was a lot of like very stereotypical gender role and that is not I may present whether or not I choose to like I think I just present as more femme um that's not necessarily like how I identify internally and so those two things can be complicated because I know a lot of people who present as femme but it might actually be someone who has more quote unquote masculine traits or aggressiveness or dominance or things like that. And so finding that right balance in a queer relationship with two women is really complicated. And so I think one of the things that I loved so much about Julia is we were both people who look, I mean, for lack of better words, real basic. <laughs> like we're real basic white girls who like shop at J. Crew. Um, but I think we both were okay kind of playing back and forth with both gender identification and gender presentation in our relationship. And that that's really crucial to me because that kind of I'm going to play the guy, I'm going to play the girl thing, it still happens in queer relationships with women a lot of times. And nobody wants to admit that because that doesn't sound great, but it happens a lot. And that was something I struggled with a lot dating women who identified as butch in particular because I was supposed to be like the quiet, submissive one. And that's not who I am. So are you saying that because you both were aware of that and rejected that, that you in this one relationship like we're actively like getting to choose and yeah. like that's amazing like real time back and forth just like and not like oh, like 100 percent of the time like i'm choosing this now for like this yeah like, task yeah that's and even amazing. just in the last like five years that we've been together like in particular like my own presentation and identity has been something that's like very fluid and evolving and that's something we've each kind of given each other space to kind of figure out and like when i met julia i was like hyper femme and looked like I mean, I'm kind of back on that femme side of the spectrum now, but there were many years where, like, I did not feel comfortable in anything that I would identify as, like, female, and I felt very, like, I would like to be gender neutral. I, I want to be in the middle. I don't want to be in either end of this spectrum, but that's not something that Julia's ever pressured me to do, but I have been in relationships with people who were like, no, if you become less feminine, then I'm no longer attracted to you, and or if you become or act more quote unquote masculine, like that doesn't work for me. Damn. And they're entitled to those attractions and, and points, but it's it's just uncomfortable. Well, that's not nice to hear, but it also breaks my heart because like that has been like quote unquote brainwashing. Like the only models of healthy relationships we have in any form of media is a man and a female. And then early gay representation had 
like a man being the female relationship, right? Yeah. He stays at home and cooks and takes care of his kids. So it makes sense that we would then want to model that. Yeah. And I don't I don't honestly have any judgment for it. It just kind of for me is like a, a deal breaker. Like if somebody's not okay with me kind of moving around in that spectrum and and not wanting to be the exact same thing every single day, that's not a relationship that I can be in. But I respect that a lot of people feel real comfortable in those binaries. I also think, I mean, yeah, no, you're right. Also, because Julia does not, uh, <laughs> I don't, I hate the word allow, but like, um, like that's so weird. Like, like she does not, um, she wants you to evolve. How about that? Because Julia wants you to evolve as a person, that fits in with exactly who you are now as somebody who's like still coming out. And I say that as like seven years later, like it took me seven years before I was comfortable presenting in a queer way. Yeah. And like, I think it's only been the last couple of years. And I think especially for women, like, what does that even mean presenting in a queer way? Exactly. When I came out, I fell into a group of people who just, that's just who they were. It was so much pressure for me to like radically change my appearance, like, you know, shave half your head more tattoos, more piercings, like you can't wear anything that's vaguely feminine unless you want to be like a high femme, which is just never going to be me anyway. And I almost did it. Like I was like, you know, ready to buzz like half my head because I was like, oh, no one will ever like me unless that I'm so clearly identified as queer. And it took one friend telling me like, that's bullshit. Like, don't do that. You just need to be yourself and find somebody who likes you that way. Otherwise you are permanently trapped in that box. And then when I came out, Personally, I moved to Portland, Oregon for a summer to just figure myself out. And I was like, how do I date women without anybody? Most people in New York and my little circle knew of me, knew of the relationship with a man. And so I was like, this is not going to be an easy process. So I took myself to Portlandia for a summer and was like, how do I date people? And almost every single person I hit on had that stereotypical look and they were all straight. And then I was like, oh, this look doesn't actually mean queer. Like the number of straight women who have kind of co-opted that, you know, Cameron Esposito haircut <laughs> like that there's so many people and that doesn't mean anything anymore yeah. and I came home and was like none of this means anything like I just need to be who I am and yeah that's a thing I'll always deal with is nobody's gonna look at me usually and say like she's queer but at the end of the day that's not as important to me as it used to be it used to be very important to me and now I'm just like that's a part of my identity it's not all of it that's fascinating that you were told or perceive that you were not gay enough when all my life growing up, I was too gay. I was so gay. And so it's like, well, that's not right. And your way wasn't right. It implies like there is only one version. And it it usually has so much more to do with somebody else's projection onto you of either that's how they feel most comfortable or that's what they're attracted to. And I get it. I mean, we all project stuff and then feel weird about why doesn't everybody else feel the same way. But it was particularly hard for me because I had flipped my entire life upside down and lost so many of my friends, all my stability. And that was my choice. I did that. Um, But it was hard because that was the group I fell into. And I was like, you know, at Metropolitan in Williamsburg, like every Wednesday night trying to meet people and then just being like, oh, maybe nobody's talking to me because I haven't shaved half my head. Um, So because you don't (laughs) present as queer, do you find that you're constantly having to come out to people even still? Oh, yeah. I mean, you and I were just talking, Julia wrote an article for the Washington Post about cooking for me as this kind of love letter, especially in light of I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes a few years ago and just what it is to support somebody with that. And people wrote her, and the article says, wife, 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 so many times, people who just wrote and said, oh, that story about you and your friend or you and your sister is so sweet. And it's just it's just willful ignorance at that point. And it feels hurtful even if somebody's not trying to be hurtful. And I don't know what they're trying to do. But 
I just find that really odd when someone said wife, 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 wife over and over again, or just girlfriend or partner or whatever term implies more than a friend. And someone just, they're just not comfortable using that term or acknowledging it. Wow. So that's when it bothers me where I'm like, if I've already come out to you in this very clear way, I shouldn't have to redo it over and over again and then deal with you repeatedly ignoring that because then that starts to feel not great. Yeah. I also just have a, such a hard time using the word coming out because it implies it's like a one-time thing and it's like one and done. It's it's never one and done. And also just, I mean, I know it's so utopian, but I just wish none of us had to do that. And I think especially on like National Coming Out Day, everyone's sharing these stories and it's just not a comfortable thing for everybody and it can be a really traumatic thing. So it's a, it's a mixed word for me. I agree. I agree. Before I let you go, I have one more question. And that is that, well, it starts with a a not question, a statement. (laughs) You've done many things. The website, uh, this book in the company of women was a massive seller, this podcast, this new magazine, which is gorgeous. What, what is the most ambitious thing you've left to do? Hmm. To step away from it all. I think that I love my work. I have started to become internally defined by my work. And that I don't think that's safe for me. Um, I think most of the work that I do in therapy these days and talking with close friends who don't work in my community is realizing how most people I know don't define themselves by their work and then realizing how I think unhealthy that's been for me. So I am always looking for an out that I think would make it easier. Like, what's this perfect dream job that I have yet to discover that will make it easy to step away? But I think most of the people who read Design Sponge just want me to talk about houses. And that's not something that I'm super interested in anymore. And I hate wasting people's time with writing that isn't connected and passionate. So Good Company and In the Company of Women has been all about trying to move myself into an area where I'm talking to people about anything other than design. And it's hard, especially when you spent, you know, 15 years kind of putting yourself into this very neat box of design person. So getting yourself out of that box is is very difficult. But I think that's my work right now. Wow. That's an amazing answer. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Of course. And that's our show. If you enjoyed the interview, please tell your friends and spread the word on social media. When you help us spread the word, it is one of the biggest things you can do to help our show grow. Thank you for that. And then as we know, the midterms are coming up very quickly. And that is why we partnered with GLAAD and their Amp Your Voice campaign to make sure that you've all the tools you need to vote and to really speak out on the issues that matter. To learn more and make sure that your voice is heard, go to glad.org slash amp your voice. We are broadcasting from The Advocate Magazine studio in Los Angeles. The Advocate is the longest running LGBT news magazine in the country. Special thanks to our old home, AfterBuzz TV, to Jason McMurdy and everyone for listening. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'll see you next week.